Hello and welcome to the War Films podcast. This is the final one in our series of 10 and today we're looking at the 1957 film The Bridge on the River Kwai. My name is Garen Ewing. I'm an illustrator, uh, writer and comic artist and I'm doing this podcast with my brother Murray. Hello, I'm Murray. Um, I've got a blog called Musings. Uh, so this is the last of our 10 films and we're going back to World War Two. 1957 this film was made the director is David Lean now we've had a David Lean film before not in the war films podcast but in our previous series we did the adventure films podcast yeah and we did Lawrence of Arabia didn't we yeah which was sort of a, a war a war film but also an adventure film that's right and I think I think we discussed that didn't we that it that could also have been in the war films category of course that was made later in 1962 yeah. so bridge on the river kwai was really the film that turned david lean into an international star oh right he'd he'd made he was he was very famous um in, in britain, britain of course yeah. and internationally but seen more perhaps of a sort of smaller film director mm. So Bridge on the River Kwai really exploded with success, <laughs> pun, pun not intended, funnily enough, uh, exploded onto the scene, uh, into the movie world. It was a huge hit. It won um, seven Oscars, didn't it? Yes, which is is, is a lot, of course. Uh, well, we'll start, it was based on a book. Yeah, so the novel was by Pierre Boulle, who also wrote the novel to one other famous film, uh, Planet of the Apes. That amazed me. Yeah. I had I had no idea about that. Such a different genre. Yeah, yeah. So Bridge on the River Kwai was published. Well, actually, Bridge over the River Kwai, as it was translated, because um, it was written in French. He's French. Um, it was published in 1952, and it was actually based quite a bit on his own experience. Um, I don't know if you've read much about him. Not a lot. Yeah. So he was an electrical engineer. And he served as a secret agent in um, Singapore and China and, I think, Burma. For the French? He served with the Free French. Now, they were, under Charles de Gaulle, they were the um, the people who were based outside, because France was occupied at the time. Yeah, and I so, know there was the Vichy France, yeah, Vichy wasn't there, France in the south. Yeah, Vichy France was the occupied French. So they were they were also in other parts of the world. But the Free French were sort of like an outside France, French right. force fighting against the <laughs> Axis forces. But um, Pierre Boulle actually um, was seconded to a British uh, special operations executive called Force 136. Oh, right. <laughs> Which is funny because in this it's Force... In the film. Is it two ones? Three, two one six or something. Yeah. Three, oh, it's three one six. It's three yeah, one six. So, Just looking um, at my notes. So he went on special missions. He was taught to blow up a bridge and to kill a guard at night with a knife. You know, all these things. Oh, my goodness. Right. Uh, and he was captured by Vichy French forces. So ah. by his own countrymen, but fighting on the Axis side. And he yeah. uh, spent two years in hard labor before escaping. Uh, so he was a prisoner of war and an escapee and a secret agent, which all fed into oh, Bridge right, on the River wow. Kwai. Yeah, yeah I, I knew the very, a very general history of him, but I didn't know that much detail and that much experience in relation to the what the film uh, book would become. And the book actually came under quite a bit of criticism, as did the film, you know, from people who had been out there saying, oh, it shows, you know, British forces 
collaborating and say we didn't yes. do that you know and yeah yeah and even the japanese criticized it for saying it made their engineers look like idiots <laughs> they said yes which wasn't the case but um as an allegory or as a sort of moral a morality play it's perfect i think it's just not yeah. historical necessarily but... right i mean that's alluded to in the i'm going to say film because i haven't read the book that's alluded to in the film of course because Nicholson, the the main character who wants mm. to build the bridge, is seen as um, having a very different view to the rest of the the yeah. British and Americans. So uh, it's not like that was the general British attitude or the general Allied attitude was to help the Japanese. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, I know the the Japanese. Yes, they they were not happy. <laughs> Certainly, some of them were not happy with the film in how it portrayed the Japanese um, and in fact they did have some very good engineers and had been planning this bridge sorry this this railway line mm. since 1937 yes um, <laughs> when they were in China yeah, they, they were had invaded China hadn't they first before the second world war mm. so they had all these plans in place although it's also true I read that after the war a lot of although the, so the British took back Burma and yeah. they kept some of the line they dismantled some of it but some of it was dismantled because they wanted a break in the line at the oh, border right. yeah. and some of it was dismantled because it wasn't very good <laughs> yeah <laughs> but then that may have been due to uh, British not wanting or and Australians and Americans um, prisoners not not wanting to build such a good quality uh, engineering yeah. project we should say really because we've talked about the line and we haven't spoken about the basic idea of the film yeah. which is it's about the building of a railway line uh, in Burma or Myanmar they want the Japanese wanted to build a railway line that linked um, Bangkok in Thailand and Rangoon in Burma um, some of that was already there already existed but so they they needed to build uh, 415 kilometers or 258 miles between Ban Pong in Thailand and yeah. Than Buzayat in Burma <laughs> I don't know if I'm good attempt well done right. <laughs> yeah. which is a major a major feat and yeah I mean it's, the, became... it's through jungle over many Mountains. rivers yeah, yeah. yeah 600 bridges I read um, it became known as the death railway by some yeah. because i mean about about a quarter of a million civilians and 60,000 allied prisoners of war uh, were forced to work on the railway and about 16,000 of those prisoners died and about 90,000 civilians died just because of conditions right. yes um so it's pretty horrendous that was another criticism of the film actually was that it didn't actually show just how bad the conditions mm. actually were and yeah. and i think the japanese had or have a reputation for being very cruel to their yeah. prisoners i don't know how widespread that was but certainly this railway was the focus of much of that yeah and i think after the war 111 japanese officers were tried for war crimes the whole the yeah. death railway was considered a war crime yeah, and thirty-two yeah. Japanese officers were sentenced to death. Yeah, I think it was a horrendous. <laughs> I mean, it would have been horrendous at any time, because it makes me think of also during uh, in America in the Wild West when they were building train lines there. They there are a lot of fatalities, and they were yeah. paid people. They weren't prisoners. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anyway, 
I believe the Japanese did actually, uh, with the civilians, which they first advertised for and asked for Mm. and then coerced, but they did actually pay them. But they were not necessarily treated all that great either. I mean, the conditions were just horrible, just the jungle anyway. And because they were out in the middle of nowhere or in the depths of the jungle, it was very difficult to get medical supplies, food, tools. So the whole thing was built with the worst tools, yes. terrible nutrition, surrounded and infested by disease and heat. Yeah. Um, and it was just, it was just, yeah, the death railway is an extremely apt name for it, I think, unfortunately. Yes, yeah. But the film is a, is a kind of a different thing. Um, it alludes to some of this, but let, let's start with the, so Sam Spiegel is was the producer, and he was one yeah. of these big Hollywood moguls types, you know, mm-hmm. the, the real uh, the real deal with the big cigar and all that kind of thing. <laughs> Quite an imposing figure. Yeah, and he had actually looked at a few others before David Lean. I believe that. So Alexander Corder and his brother Zoltan Corder, who were both directors, they bought the rights initially. Um, it didn't get made, and they sold them to Spiegel. I think, I'm pretty sure Carl Foreman, who was the main initial scriptwriter, worked for Corder at the time, because he he, he was in England because he'd been blacklisted in America yeah. because of the yes. um, McCarthy hearings, yeah. the communist things, yeah. So Spiegel, at first he wanted Fred Zinnemann to direct, and he also thought of Orson Welles. Mm. He offered it to him and said, you can direct and star in it, which would have been a bit strange. I, I, yeah. I mean, who would he star as? Nicholson? Yeah, you can't imagine him coming out of the oven, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, the other person they Spiegel was very keen to have was Charles Lawton. Yeah, I heard that. So these are both kind of large actors. And yeah. when you're talking about people being in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, that's not how they people ended up or even went into them, really. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. that didn't happen, of course. And it went, eventually went to David Lean was given this opportunity. Now, Carl Foreman um, was writer and producer of The Guns of Navarone. Yes. Was yeah. that our first War Films podcast? I think it was. Yes, it I was. I think that was yes, the first yeah. one we did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, he'd also done High Noon, which is a very good film, very yes, famous. Yeah. So High Noon was 52. Guns of Navarone was, came later, 1961. And yes, he wrote the initial treatment of the book. He changed it quite a bit. By the time David Lean came on, he really he loved the book really yeah. inspired him and hated Foreman's script <laughs> yes a lot a lot yeah yeah and asked for some changes which Foreman did do but he still wasn't totally happy and I don't think they particularly got on very well now one um, thing I heard about David Lean at the time is he just had a divorce he'd been through a divorce and it cost him a lot and he was in tax exile from Britain. Yeah, I think he they went to uh, the Bahamas or something to sign the contracts because he couldn't go to England at the time. He <laughs> flew over it and he looked down at you know his uh, green England and felt <sighs> a pang of homesickness. Oh, um, missing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, homesickness, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so did Lee, Lean started working on the script, didn't he? Yeah, he did quite a lot of work on it, actually. I mean, even if it was at first, he sent a whole load of suggestions to Carl Foreman to mm. introduce. And he eventually he said, look, I can't work with him. He just doesn't understand it. Yeah. What, what David Lean's idea of the book. And Carl Foreman suggested a fellow exile 
Michael Wilson, who had also been was out of the states, yeah, but they exactly. in between them, um, Calder Willingham was yeah. brought in. He did Parts of Glory, which is another yes. of our, our yeah. uh, war films in 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 fifty seven, the same year actually, and The Graduate, and also Spartacus. Uh, oh, so a right. couple a couple of um, Kubrick films there, but Lean definitely didn't get on with him, and I yes. think he stayed a very short amount of time in Ceylon. Ceylon mm. as it was then, Sri Lanka now. Excuse yeah. me if I mix up the two terms. <laughs> Same with Burma. You, know, you have to remember now it's Myanmar, isn't it? Yeah, although I was looking that up because I thought, oh, I bet Burma is one of those names that the British imposed on it. But in fact, Burma and Myanmar are both names that the Burmese accept. They, right. they come from the same root, even though they sound differently, apparently. Ah, OK. Very... Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Michael Wilson came on. The whole the whole screenwriter write, thing was an interesting mess, actually, because, of mm. course, the screenplay won an Oscar. Yes. And who was named... Because of the blacklist, so Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson both being blacklisted, mm. uh, neither of them were named, and it was Pierre Boulle who yeah. was put down as the screenwriter, even though he hadn't written a word for it of it. Yes. Uh, he wrote the novel, of course. And it wasn't until 1984 that their names were... Yeah, Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson's names were put down as the screenplay, but David Lean still wasn't happy because his name never appeared on the yeah. credits as a screenwriter, even though he feels, and everyone's got their own story, he felt that he had written and shaped much of the script. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those but, things where there were so many different hands in it. And of course, by 1984, both Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson were dead, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I did read that... Uh, Carl Foreman was told that the day before he died that Bridge oh. the River Choir had won the Oscar. Oh, oh right. So, oh no, sorry, that he'd not won the Oscar in 1984, that he'd be recognised right, um, right. as as one of the writers and the Oscar winner. Yeah. So if that's a small comfort, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there are only... There are a few changes in the novel. I, I, apparently, Pierre Boulle said, after he'd seen the film, he said, oh, I wish I'd thought of those. So he approved of the changes. Yes, I think he did. But yeah. then again, he, yeah. he won an Oscar for it for free. So, Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things is the character of Shears, who's an American in the film, is mm. a British commando in the novel. Yeah. And uh, another thing is the bridge never gets blown up in the, in the novel. Yeah, which is also, I think, reflects real life because mm. in history i think it was bombed but not until sort of 19 yeah, the last year of the war really 1945 yeah. when the british and the americans bombed it at various points yeah so that's the writers um that's really the creative team we've got the producer and um the actors are interesting because the main character of colonel nicholson yeah the list of actors that were thought of before alec guinness his name was floated around already, mm. but also Cary Grant. Oh, sorry, Cary Grant and Humphrey Bogart were possibilities for Shears, Major Shears, oh, the American right. in the film. Yeah. Nicholson, Noel Coward. How about that? Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> He'd have been, I can imagine that actually. Laurence yeah. Olivier, I can imagine that. He didn't want to do it. Mm. Spencer Tracy. I cannot imagine that. <laughs> Charles Lawton, of course, we've already mentioned. Ralph Richardson was another one. Anthony yeah. Quayle, who who was um, mm, been in, uh, 
Yep, uh, James Mason and Richard Coleman. These were all considered, and Guinness kept being suggested. David Lean didn't want Alec Guinness because they worked together though, hadn't they? Yeah, quite, quite. You know, in the the Dickens films, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Great Expectations and and um, Oliver Twist, which are both great. I love those films. And so Alec Guinness was already very famous. He he'd done quite a lot of the Ealing comedies, you know, Lambda Hill Mob. Uh, kind Hearts and Coronets, which was very mm. famous. Lady Killers, yeah, that was before, wasn't it? He'd been in Great Expectations, Oliver Twist. But because David Lee knew him, he kind of knew that Alec Guinness would have a different view of Nicholson. <laughs> Mainly centering on, centering on, he thought Alec Guinness would want a little bit of subtle humour in there. And um, David Lee wanted him totally serious. Yes, all yeah. in with his, you know, pomposity, if you like. Yeah. And that turned out to be true. Alec Guinness did want to put a little bit of humour into him. And that was a great... Uh, they didn't really get on in during the filming. They um, fell out. They got back together again. They fell out. Um, it was not a great relationship. <laughs> it ended up OK. But during yes, the filming, yeah. there was a lot of uh, tension. <laughs> yeah, I heard that the way um, David Lean explained the character to Alec Guinness, he said, he's a, he's a bore. And yeah. Alec Guinness said... You want me to play a ball? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, Alec Guinness got it, and um, he was happy in the end. He actually, after filming, despite all the arguments, he had a special screening of the film with his wife and son, and they watched it in silence and didn't really say anything and left. <laughs> and I don't think it was David Lean who showed it. I think it was one of the other, uh, you know, the second director or one of the, yeah. Um, right. technical yeah. or the cameraman I can't remember but that later that evening there was a knock on the door and it was Alec Guinness and he said we've we've thought about it and that I think that's some of the best work I've ever done oh right and of course he did win an Oscar in the end so the other big star is William Holden he lucked in a bit on this because he right. got I've read he got 10% of the um, film's takings yeah, yeah. $300,000 pay plus 10% of the yeah. takings. And because it was so successful, that was so much that he actually asked the studio to pay him only 50000 a year because he didn't want to just waste it all. <laughs> and uh, right. it pretty much set him up for life, you know. I mean, yeah. he did act again, but... Um... You wonder if that inspired Alec Guinness because he did the same with Star Wars, didn't he? Yes, yes. And because yes. and he, thought, he thought it's not going to be that great, mm. at least give me something. And of course, it, he earned millions from it. Yeah, I mean, he was also in, um, there's another war film, which I thought we could have done, was um, Billy Wilder's Stalag 17, which was a prisoner oh, of war thing. That right, was in 1953. Right. Sunset Boulevard is the one I know him most from. Oh, right. Yeah, He's yeah. He's the main guy in that, isn't he? And I don't really know him that well. No. Because no. he's a big American star from, obviously, a, a time before us. But Sunset Boulevard mm. is a brilliant film, so I knew him from that. He was also in The Towering Inferno later. <laughs> but um, he he actually had a younger brother who was killed in World War Two against the Japanese, fighting the Japanese. Oh, right. And, uh, yeah, he was Ronald Reagan's best man <laughs> at his wedding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only little fact I've got about um, William Holden is that he apparently he was quite hairy-chested. But there's a lot of films in this, a lot of scenes in this film where he's he's topless, and he had, yeah. to, he had to have his chest shaved every day. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
He he was uh, going to be in the Guns of Navarone actually, but um, he asked for too much money, so he missed out on that one. Yeah. But he's he plays Major Shears, this American character, and he is a kind of a stock American. Uh, no, the character's interesting, but it's it's this idea of you've got to have an American in it because yeah. this is, it won't otherwise American audiences won't be interested. Yeah. And for the same reason, there was a scene put in purely because they needed a Western attractive female so when she is ends up um, he escapes and ends up in a hospital and having a very nice time on a beach with one of the nurses uh, well an officer uh, who's played by Anne Sears and David Lean was not happy with that because again it was just put in there to have really some eye candy as it as it (laughs) would have been known as but actually I think it fits right in the film quite nicely I don't think it stands out and it really brings Major Shear's character through and makes it a lot more interesting when he has to go back on the mission because that's not him at all yes (laughs) I think that works really well and he turns out to be a a really interesting character I think it's partially because of Mm. what's revealed about him in that scene with the with Anne Sears with the lady and um and I think David Lean later watched the film and thought no actually it works okay so yeah 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 but it was yep. kind of stuck in there. Yeah. Yeah, another character is um, Major Warden, played by Jack Hawkins. Yeah. Who's in Lawrence of Arabia and in Zulu. I will say Jack Zulu. Hawkins. Jack Hawkins with a... With a, uh, a sort of a Jack Hawkins, isn't he? Jack Hawkins. <laughs> <laughs> He's got that name, that... Yeah. <laughs> London. Uh, He's from London. I don't know if he is from London. But... Sorry, yes, he he was in... He was in Zulu. He was the sort of the cowardly priest, or was he a drunk cowardly? Priest? That's right. Yes, he was probably a bit of both. Yeah. And uh, yeah, who he's not in it much, is he? No. And he was also General Allenby in Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, he was in a lot of films, but uh... he was a massive star. Yeah. I. Do you know? I. I was convinced he was in um, Treasure Island, and he. I don't think I couldn't see that he was. No. Right. I think he was in Kidnapped, which is a. You know, so I might got that those, those mixed up. Yeah, reading when we've gone through various actors, especially in these war films, which I don't, I haven't looked, I can't remember the dates now, but a lot of them are fifties and sixties, mm, and mm. we've got we've got this such a massive range of really classic heavyweight actors. Yes, but reading their biographies, and again, I haven't counted them up, but I kept coming across how many of them died from lung cancer. Oh, really? Uh, which maybe isn't surprising. The amount of yeah, obviously smoking was yeah. seen very differently back then but Jack Hawkins actually had to have his larynx taken out uh, <laughs> in the late 60s yeah um, and he carried on working for many years yeah. um, you know being dubbed in I think this is right this is from memory I think he died after an operation to try and put um, some kind of mechanical voice box or something oh, really? in, I don't know wow. whether it was hemorrhage or something but yeah just one of those horrible statistics <laughs> yes yeah another actor who was quite interesting i don't know if i'm going to get pronounce this right it was sesue hayakawa who was colonel saito yeah. he was uh, a silent film star in hollywood he in was fact, he, yeah he was the first Very... asian actor to be a leading man in hollywood yeah and you see the photos of him he was really an extremely handsome chap wasn't he mm. <laughs> uh and uh, he was something of a heartthrob apparently yes uh, he was in The Cheat, which I've, I know that film, in 1915 by DeMille. That's quite famous. So oh, I right. think that's the one that brought him to prominence. 
Yeah, he was interesting in this film. Uh, he, by the time he made Bridge Over the River Choir, I think he was 68. Mm. And a lot of people were surprised because people of that generation knew of him. Yes. And uh, they go, oh, wow, they've got uh, <laughs> you know, Hayakawa. And I think David Lean thought he was going a bit gaga, as he put it. And his English wasn't great, despite yes. working in Hollywood for many years. And he actually, although the script was you know an inch thick, he got rid of all the pages where he didn't speak. So he yeah. only carried around his little quarter of an inch script, if that, um, you know, a few pages of script. Mm. And he'd only learnt the lines for when he was on camera. Right. So sometimes he was speaking and there'd be a close-up of Alec Guinness. But he hadn't learned those lines because he thought they were going to be dubbed in later. So during filming, he had to say, oh, I've got to go away and learn these lines. Um, and the other problem with his script, just having the bits where he spoke, was he had no idea at the end he dies. Uh, spoiler alert, by the way. Um, <laughs> until they got to that scene to film. So again, David Lean had a little bit of an issue yes. with him. Yeah. But um, he's good in the film, isn't he? I found one little fact about him, which I think you might like, is um, when he was, I mean, he was born in Japan, but he went to yeah. like college or university or whatever in America. Um, and he, he played American football there. And apparently he was once penalised for using jujitsu to bring down an opponent. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah. He became a Zen master after his career. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Yeah, there aren't, there aren't a lot of main actors in this, you know, for for a enormous three-hour film there's it's a quite a small cast aren't there yeah yeah well yes a lot of extras with all the prisoners yes, oh, yes. the other the other japanese well there's quite a few japanese actors in it of course but the the other sort of main Speaking one of, if you like yeah. yeah is the is he a captain captain kanematsu uh, he's right. played by henry okawa yeah. And he was in, uh, again, he worked in Hollywood quite a bit, but uh, in a lot of Japanese films, especially in Narusi, uh, he's one of, he's a really good director. If you know Ozu and, oh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, what's his name, Kurosawa. <laughs> <laughs> Kurosawa, Ozu, the the classic golden age of Japan, Japanese films, Naruse was another one. So oh, Floating yeah. Clouds might be one of his most famous films, 1955, so only a couple of years before Bridge of Kwai. So Okawa played with in quite a few Naruse films. Oh, right, right. So, you know, Naruse is a big, big Japanese director, so he he had a good pedigree there. Uh, there's James Donald played Major Clipton, the Doctor. He's a really interesting character in it. Sort of like the moral compass of the film, the the one yeah, who's able how... to comment. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how doctors tend to be that, because I'm thinking of yes. uh, Bones in Star Trek. He's like the, the heart. Whereas the rational Bob, voice. yeah. Or, or the, the moral voice, you know. Yeah, moral voice, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, James Donald, he worked with David Lean before in which we serve. He was later in The Great Escape and yes. also Quatermass and the Pit. And the, the other Quatermass and the Pit, um, yes, a connection. Is it Andre Morel? Yes, he was in the TV Colonel version Green. of Quatermass and the Pit in He was Quatermass, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, there was a different actor for every... Quatermass series and film, I think. Right. Oh, okay. Uh, but I think he—he's the one I like best. I recognise him most. Uh, he played. I think he did anyway. I hope I got this right. He played Watson in Hammer's yes. Hound of the Baskervilles. Ah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he was also—I didn't know this—but he did the voice of Elrond in Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, there's two characters will come to the end of the actors, but two others, they're the sort of privates. So the men, yeah. the, they're the, the ones who keep giving you know, facial expressions to you know, rolling their eyes or yes. looking at each other. A little bit of comedy. Percy Herbert and Harold Goodwin played Private Grogan. or He might be a corporal, actually. I think he's referred to as a corporal. Uh, Grogan and Private Baker. Uh, Percy Herbert was in Guns of Navarone. Oh, right. And he played a character called Sergeant Grogan. And oh. in this he plays Private or Corporal Grogan. <laughs> and at first I thought, oh, is that some kind of... Yeah, was that his choice? Is it a coincidence? But the reason it is, is because Carl Foreman, his agents were Grogan and Baker. <laughs> and in every film he wrote, he put in a Grogan and a Baker. So these two privates are called Grogan and Baker. And in fact, later, when David Lean said Carl Foreman had you know, had nothing to do with the finished script, uh, he used this as evidence. He said, well, it's got Grogan and Baker, and I always put them in my script. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's very canny. Yes. But Percy Herbert was in a Japanese prisoner of war camp for four years in Singapore. Oh, wow. And because of his experience, he was actually paid £5 a day extra to act as a sort of advisor for David oh. Lean on, on the day-to-day -day life in the camp or you know, little yeah. details that he could bring to the film. Yeah. But he's he's a well-known... I mean, you see the film, he's he's you'll recognise him. He was in, as I say, Guns of Navarone. He was in Night of the Demon. He was in Carry On Films. He was in One Million Years BC. <laughs> <laughs> and the classic, uh, which I'm sure made his career, One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing. He was oh, in right, well. yeah. He got the Oscar yeah. for that, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so if that's the actors, um, the the other only other name I've got down is um, Malcolm Arnold, who did the music, who'd uh, worked with um, David Lean in Brief Encounter, and right. would also work with him on uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Apparently, yeah. he had ten days to write the score, and he would work from. He'd get up at 4am to start working and work till midnight for those 10 days. Oh, my God. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, deadlines. Yeah. But he won an Oscar for it. He also did the music for The Heroes of Telemark, which was another film I'd considered putting in oh, this really? top 10, because I really like that one. Yeah. But he was... He wrote music for, you know, many, many films, but mm -hmm. he also had... Was extremely successful uh, just in classical music and ballet Yes, yeah. Music. He was a conscientious objector in World War Two. Oh, right. I didn't know. Which is interesting. And in fact, his brother was killed uh, while in the RAF. Yeah. So he had a change of heart and volunteered. And then he was put in a military band. And I don't know if it's <laughs> that or if he decided that perhaps he didn't want to be in the army. So he shot himself in the foot and got back to being a civilian, a civilian. or a musician. With the, wow. I think it was with the London Philharmonic. That's like the classic thing, isn't it? Shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. <laughs> in the name of His Imperial Majesty, I welcome you. I am the commanding officer of this camp, which is Camp 16, along the Great Railroad, which will soon connect Bangkok with Rangoon, you British prisoners have been chosen to build a bridge across the river Kwai. 
So it's set in Burma, as we've already said. In um, fe- it starts in February 1943, so in, yeah. in the middle of the Second World War, really. Uh, and this is Camp 16 on the route between Bangkok and Rangoon. I think there's actual this bridge that they're building is an actual historical bridge, Bridge 277 over the river. Right. Kwai, the Kwai Noi River, as it's actually called, but it's called the yeah. River Kwai here. Just um, to point out, the that that's all in. Thailand, isn't it? The actual bridge, the oh, historically, the historical bridge, or what's now Thailand? Uh, maybe oh, it was yeah. then as well. I don't know. But the filming took place across the sea in, in Ceylon, in Sri Lanka, oh, right. on the yeah. east coast near Colombo. It wasn't shot on location, but Sam Spiegel wanted it initially to be shot in Europe. He looked in, uh, I think, Yugoslavia and in Sicily. Wow. But then, what I think one of David Lean's assistants, who had been in the second world war in singapore knew some he thought he knew a good area where it would be and in fact he found the location uh. so that's one of the things about this film which really comes across is it's genuine it's shot yeah. in the jungle it's shot on a river they actually built a bridge they actually mm. blew up the bridge yeah obviously no computer effects back in 1957 yeah. they even built a dam further up the river so that they could <laughs> control the height of the water because obviously at one point near the end yes i wondered about that actually yeah so the opening scene's quite good because we start with uh, shaw uh, who's the american and an australian guy they're they're digging graves so it just shows you know the kind of what life in the camp is like seems like a Um, full-time occupation doesn't it (laughs) yeah in fact later he says because it's famously uh they say you can't yeah, there's no point in escape there's no barbed wire there's no yeah. towers there's there's nothing to stop you escaping apart now i this i didn't understand does does he say we're on an island you can't escape we're on an island i don't remember that i mean i might have misheard it then it was it. His... we're an island in the middle of a jungle you know metaphorically yeah. maybe yeah or maybe i misheard but um yeah. they're not on an island a word to you about the escape there is no barbed wire, no stockade, no watchtower. They are not necessary. We are an island in the jungle. Escape is impossible. You would die. But anyway, you know, um, escape is certain death. But as the as Shaw says, staying in the camp. Um, is is even worse odds i think he puts yeah and then in come the british this is quite a famous scene because obviously we've got colonel the colonel bogey march playing they're whistling it um and this is one thing the americans said uh, no no one will understand the significance of this piece of music because it's supposed to show them sort of being a bit flippant and showing a bit of resistance towards the japanese you know and of course um david lean said um well, they couldn't have the sort of famous lyrics to Colonel Bogey, um, <laughs> but he, David Lean said all the um, all the British ex-soldiers in the audience will know exactly what this piece of music means. I don't know if you... I mean, I, I know the lyrics to that song. <laughs> well, the ones that came about in World War Two, yes. because it was written in World War One, 1914. Um, yeah. yeah, just so... OK, just at the start. Or the, just and, as an instrumental, yeah. Right, exactly. And so the lyrics didn't come into it until, you know, 
what's yeah. thought of as a bit of propaganda. But the world, world War Two was so huge, even when I was at school in the 70s, in primary school, mm. that mm. we went around the playground singing this song about Hitler and what was in his trousers, you know. <laughs> or what wasn't, I should say. What wasn't in his trousers. And Goering and Himmler. Himmler's very similar. <laughs> I think that's a brilliant, a brilliant rhyme. Yeah, anyway, it's interesting the different lyrics, because I learnt Hitler has only got one ball and then the other is in the Albert Hall yes (laughs) but there's there's another one that says uh, is it Hitler's only got one ball is it Goering has two but very small or something yes yeah yeah there's very very variant lyrics (laughs) but the Albert Hall one was the one we used to go around the playground singing yeah amazing yeah apparently the march was written there was a a military man who played golf and instead of shouting four he would whistle yeah <laughs> uh, and that became the start of each line of the uh, the music yes and colonel yeah. bogey the, the name colonel bogey march comes from a system of scoring in golf oh i've heard of a bogey is that yeah, a bogey is one under par and in, in this system of scoring i don't know much about it but it was yeah. described as if you were playing against a Colonel Bogey. He was like uh, the imagined, like the bogeyman. Imagined, yes, yeah, <laughs> he was the imagined opponent. Um, ah, right. And, and so oh, that's, that's good. I like that. Yeah. Anyway, it is absolutely iconic for this film, isn't it? Yeah. Probably where where many people today would know it from. Although, as I say, we learnt it at school. Who knows how? <laughs> it was still. It was. It was one of those things from the Second World War that just was yeah. still affecting our yeah. culture. Well, I wonder if um, um, it sort of came back in, you know, because of the film, a, lot, a whole new generation. You know, might... That might be it, of course. Although it wasn't that long after the war, was it? Yeah. 57. Yeah. You know, tw- I mean, you think about it, 12 years. You think about 12 years ago now, you think, oh, my God, yeah. that's not, not very long ago at all. Right. Apparently, it was a bit of a nightmare to actually score, even yeah. though he already had the tune, because they filmed it and obviously they couldn't use the sound from the filming. And because they had several different cuts, when it was all edited together, only Malcolm Arnold noticed that they were marching slightly different speeds in different cuts. Right. And so he had a bit of a nightmare trying to get it all line up, but it eventually did. Um, they recorded it with 18 people whistling and one piccolo to keep them in tune. Ah, right, right. <laughs> and, then, and then a load of soldiers doing the marching sound, yeah. And I think that, so the original writer of the music uh, was Echo dead. He, yes. Yeah, he died at the beginning of the Second World War in 1945. But his widow reaped the benefits and she, apparently she wasn't that well off and wanted to visit, I don't know if it was her home in South Africa one more time, but this this gave her the money to do it thanks to the film. So she was able to visit South Africa and then she came back to England and died. Um, mm. Yeah, happy. Yeah, hopefully happy. <laughs> well, yes, it ends in death. That's everything done. It's kind of a happy situation. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yes, in they come. They're showing uh, this disdain, if you like, for the Japanese. And the main point about this whole these whole opening scenes is it shows Nicholson in charge of his men, wanting to do the right thing. The Japanese colonel coming out, wanting to make his stamp on them yeah. as prisoners and kind of failing not not very strongly at first but they they have a falling out don't they colonel saito says you're here you're going to work on the railway 
and he's under a pressure of a deadline yeah. Yeah. of you know like a month away or something um and so he says officers are going to work as well nicholson brings out the geneva convention yes. and says article 27 says that officers don't work and this is the point of contention on which starts off the conflicts yeah at this point doesn't well, the it? whole the whole thing is even though we're in an insane situation it's war and they're prisoners in a jungle miles from anything else yeah there are rules and it's like the one thing that stops war from becoming complete chaos is rules yeah. it doesn't matter what the rules are as long as you stick to the few rules you've got then you're not complete barbarians but you're soldiers yeah i mean the reality as we know was some of the terrible things that the actual prisoners of war suffered yeah 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 and even some of the japanese I and mean, i think i think over a thousand japanese soldiers and koreans actually died um, mm. during the building of the railway not no nowhere near as many as the civilians and then yeah. the prisoners but yeah yeah i looked up article 27 of the geneva convention right because i was curious and at first it was just about clothing and i thought oh they made it up then but actually i'd got the wrong one so the 1929 geneva convention was the one that was in uh, enforcement during the second world war uh, yeah. so That's here it the... is article article 27 belligerents may employ as workmen prisoners of war who are physically fit other than officers and persons of equivalent statue according to their rank and their ability nevertheless if officers or persons of equivalent status ask for suitable work this shall be found for them as far uh, as possible uh, <laughs> so there you go article 27 yes yeah colonel i heard your remarks just now sir and i can assure you my men will carry on in the way one expects of the british soldier and naturally, my officers and I will be responsible for their conduct. Now then, sir, you may have overlooked the fact that the use of officers for manual labour is expressly forbidden by the Geneva Convention. Is that so? I happen to have a copy of the Convention with me and would be glad to let you glance through it, if you wish. That will not be necessary. But you, what you said is very interesting about this sort of microcosm and the rules. Yeah. Because Saito mentions Bushido, doesn't he? Yes, so he comes yeah. from... In fact, they both come from similar cultures in a way, these island nations of Japan and Britain. They've both had uh, feudal warrior, almost caste, caste systems. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so you've got the samurai and Bushido. And there's a kind of pomposity there that comes along with the class system. And so he's yes. got that. And Nicholson is obviously from the upper classes of British society and also again the army is its own world isn't it yes yeah um and it's actually mentioned later when the doctor major clipton goes to see nicholson in the oven where he's yes. been put as a punishment he says you know it's, the men are gonna die because saito is threatening to use the men in the hospital mm. if the officers don't come out and work he says they're gonna die and nicholson says yes but it's the principal yes yeah. <laughs> it's crazy and this yeah. is this is mentioned several times the craziness of it by shears by clipton even by nicholson thinks saito's crazy saito thinks nicholson's crazy yes. they call each so much people so many people in this film calling yes. other people mad <laughs> yeah yeah the the actual novel begins i mean this is a translation but um it begins saying the insuperable gap between east and west that exists in some eyes is perhaps nothing more than an optical illusion during the last war saving face was perhaps as vitally important to the british as it was to the japanese so where the novel starts it's all about 
how they've got right. similar but slightly different, very strict codes. Yeah. And I thought a way of looking at it was, as you say, the Japanese have got Bushido, uh, whereas the British have got cricket. Because <laughs> yeah. at one point, Saitu says, it's not a game of cricket. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it's like the idea of taking trivial things like cricket very seriously and yes. seeming not yeah. to take very serious things seriously at all, you know, like life or death. Doesn't really matter yeah. as long as we stick to the rules, you know. They're both sort of equally insane <laughs> in such yeah. extreme conditions. You mean you intend to uphold the letter of the law no matter what it costs? Without law, Commander, there is no civilization. That's just my point. Here there is no civilization. Then we have the opportunity to introduce it. So Saito says they've got to work on the bridge. The deadline is the 12th of May and officers have to work, but the officers refuse. So when the men go off to work the next day, the officers just stand there in the sun, refusing to do anything. Mm. And Saito brings in two men with a machine gun to threaten them, but still they just stand there. And then eventually uh, Nicholson is put in the oven and the other officers are put in, I think it's called like a punishment hut, but it's pretty much a bigger oven. (laughs) (laughs) There's a scene where all the men sing, when Nicholson goes into the oven, they all sing, for he's a jolly good fellow, which I think just, I don't know how you feel about Nicholson. Sometimes I have some sympathy with his point of view. Mm. And other times I kind of hate all that class stuff where the men are seen as, it's very British attitude, are seen as, oh, oh, look at the men, you know, look at the men. uh, And they're all on their, you know, with their caps in their hands singing for he's a jolly good fellow. The deference, that's it. But then again, another part of Nicholson's view is he seems to be doing all this not because he wants to build an amazing bridge, although I think that is obviously part of it, and not because he wants to help the Japanese at all, but for his men's mental health. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, Really, that's what it's about. And it's true. When nothing, when he's in the oven, the work goes terribly the Japanese don't know how to handle them they can't handle them they can't make them work it's not a very good bridge anyway so that doesn't help and so he's right when when he gets out and gives them a project let's make the best bridge we've ever done the men's morale comes up it gives them something to focus on it it saves lives actually doesn't it really one of his points is if the men feel as though they're working under their officers orders they're soldiers whereas if yeah. they're working under the japanese they're slaves so he says yes. it's good for their morale just to have the officers telling them what to do even if it is ultimately the japanese project you know. yeah there's a there's something connected with that so there's been a prisoner escape attempt yeah uh with shears an australian and an englishman yes. <laughs> an englishman an american and an australian <laughs> walk into a japanese prisoner camp or walk out of a japanese prisoner camp uh, <laughs> um the englishman and the australian get shot quite early on in the attempt she has managed to fall into a river and make it but anyway the point is saito says he says it's crazy to escape but at least when they did, they were soldiers again. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. But then he says, but they're mad. Um, <laughs> that what they are escaping from is reality. Yes. Uh, and that's really interesting when we're talking about madness and craziness. Yeah. How he says they're escaping from reality. I mean, in a way, this film is in two halves. The first half, you're <laughs> thinking that Nicholson is, you know, you can admire him for sticking to his guns. Right. And doing it for his men's sake. In the second half, he sort of 
starts to turn dark because he starts doing <laughs> things just to get the bridge done and he gets you know the um people in the sick bay or whatever it's called yes. um to work yeah. you know so it's yeah. almost like two halves um his character doesn't change but your view of it changes i find yeah i mean yeah. i do love the scene where he, he's brought out of the oven a couple of times yeah but the one where he's brought out and sat down opposite saito and he gets out his whatever corned beef and scottish whiskey yes <laughs> or whatever it is i love that turnaround where yes. saito starts by thinking he's gonna get the better of nicholson and yeah. you know, give him some food and and then before you know it Nicholson stood up, is telling him what's going to happen, yeah. is eating the food. Because, of course, Saito says if he doesn't do it, he's going to have to commit seppuku. Yeah. And that suddenly gives Nicholson all the cards. Yeah. Because he can now lord it over him. And it, it works. He gets, and as you say, eventually they get the men working. That's not quite doing it enough. So he gets the men in the hospital and then the officers start helping out. Yeah. So yeah, there's. I, w I was wondering, you know, do you feel sympathy for Nicholson? Do you feel sympathy for Saito? And it's kind of a bit of both, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Although maybe not Nicholson. Nicholson is the one who is almost like he is the most mad because he's the most... <laughs> he sticks to the rules so strictly. Yeah. I mean, even in terms of building the bridge one of his officers says should we not collaborate with the enemy you know should mm, we not mm. try and build the bridge yeah and um nicholson says well we were ordered to surrender that's why right. we're here so yeah. strictly speaking it might be against military rules not yeah. to you know to try and escape for instance he says yeah don't, don't try and escape it's a very strict rule-based way of looking at it the situation he may be uh reworking logic there to his own advantage i don't yeah. know um yeah. but i think i think he is but uh, you can believe in him all the way especially as he seems to be doing it for the good of the men mm. until the end and just skipping to the end a little bit here yeah. because he notices the wires yes yeah and he goes and tells saito he's really worried about them that they're going to blow up the bridge <laughs> yes Anyway, we're skipping to the yeah, end yeah, a little bit there. The but So anyway, just going back to Shear's escape, yes. it's, it's quite an interesting little sequence as well. He ends up in this village, with, uh, and it's all paradise, isn't he? He's got flowers yeah. around his neck. <laughs> isn't there a scene in Papillon a bit like that? Have you seen Papillon? I don't where think they, so, no. Dustin Hoffman, although there was another version made more recently, and they escape from this devil's island... And I think there's a scene where they end up in a village and it's all paradise. And oh. But then they have to go on. As So in Shears, he's taken out of the village so far, but then he's on his own again. Mm. And again, he almost dies at sea, but he's picked up by a seaplane. We don't see that in the film. It's um, Because the next thing we see is he's on the beach with, you know, and Sears. And just to, just to get through this plot point, he is then recruited by uh, this... Force 316 yeah. a rather rum group as it's called, <laughs> a rather rum group and Major Warden mm. they want him to go back into the jungle because he knows the area that's why they want him Yes, um, because they're going to place some explosives on the bridge and he was, um, uh, at this point Shears was hoping just for a medical discharge Yeah, for him the war was over as you say <laughs> you I mean know. it turns out he's not a major he impersonated yes. a major yeah. and at first he thinks that's his route out at first he's, he thinks right I can admit to all this and they'll get me out but actually they knew about that yeah. and because of that they the Americans have turned him over into the control of the British yeah. <laughs> who can pretty much order him to go 
Yeah. Although they think, treat him very nicely, actually. Mm. Although one of the funny things is, is they're going to parachute into Burma mm. and they realise he hasn't had any parachute training. <laughs> and they do a quick sort of calculation and say the risk of injury on training yeah. is like 50% injury per drop. So yeah. they say there's no point in training you. You might as well just uh, have your first parachute drop in the actual mission. <laughs> That's funny because at one point when he realises that, oh, I'm going to, oh, in that case, I don't have to do it. But they say, no, we're just going to drop you in. Yes. They, there's a scene where they bring in another member of the group who is Joyce. Yeah. yeah. Lieutenant, Lieutenant Joyce. Yeah. And he's also an interesting character. We didn't talk about him, actually. He's played, who's he played by? Jeffrey Horn. All right. He's still alive. I think he was born in 1933. I think he's still alive. Mm. So he must be 88 or something. My maths is not great on them uh, that quickly, but I think he's around there. Did you notice that when Major Shears... Uh, did you know that bit where he walks through the practice bit where there's all these commandos practicing and he gets attacked? Yes, yeah. He's attacked by Joyce. Oh, I didn't notice that. No. I only noticed that on the second viewing yeah. because, of course, on the first viewing, he's just a guy being attacked. You don't see until later. Yeah. But because I now knew what he looked like when I saw it again, I realised, oh, it was Joyce that attacked him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, a training and attack, he, of course. Yeah, so he's Canadian um, yeah. and he joined up um, joined up in the British Army to fight. But it's made clear that he hasn't really been tested in combat yet because they ask him, would you be able to kill someone with a knife? Mm. And he says... "Yeah." You know, I hope I'd be able to, but you know that that's going to come to the test. You just know I like that. that bit where they show his honesty, uh, mm. where he is honest about it and says, I'm not sure. And that puts some doubt into Colonel Green's mind. But then Major Warden says, well, at least he was honest. You know, none of us know if we can do it until we yeah. do it. Yeah, and of course, that becomes pertinent later on because he is faced with a Japanese yes. soldier in the jungle and having to kill him. He hesitates. Warden yes. rushes in. And kills him. Kills him, yeah. We get a little bit of pathos because the Japanese soldier, who's a boy, isn't he? He's so young. Yeah. yeah. Dies and the, he drops the family photograph and you think, oh my God. <laughs> yes, yeah. And Warden gets shot in the foot. Oh, another, sh <laughs> this is a theme of this podcast. Yes. <laughs> shot himself in the foot. Well, he didn't shoot himself in the foot. He, he no. gets a, a bullet injury in his foot, which of course then makes the trek across the jungle. Yeah. Really difficult. Um, I like the bit where they, they go to the, Siamese village and yes. all the the young men have been taken by the Japanese to build the railway yeah. line yeah. so there's, uh, they can only take women as bearers now mm -hmm. and I, I've got this scene in my head which I don't think is in the it's not in the film but where uh, Major Warden probably says go and find the six most attractive women in the village to, to, <laughs> because they've got these young attractive yeah. women I think I read that Carl Foreman wanted some kind of Amazonian female character <laughs> that goes with them from the village and this may be her divided into six in some way I don't know but it's quite yeah. funny I mean I, I like it because you see them battling through the jungle and the men are all sweating and limping and <laughs> and then the women are carrying these huge huge weights they're carrying all the baggage and they're just sort of <laughs> swanning along yeah smiling at the men yeah. oh dear that may be a little bit where you start thinking, yeah. yeah. But, you know, there's also this aspect of women insurgents battling mm. against and invading because yeah. the men have been either killed or fighting. or t So you do get this. You've had it in the Soviets. The, so, it, you know, it fits in with the 
um, resistance yes. idea that yeah. you very much got um, women getting involved just as much as the men and, yes, and of course yeah. doing just as good a job and they they really I mean they they even carry Major Warden even though he doesn't want to be they make a stretcher and carry him yeah so all the while that um, Warden and Shears are making their way to the bridge Nicholson has pretty much taken charge of building the bridge yeah. there's a great scene where um, <laughs> him and his officers sit down to talk to Sato <laughs> yeah I love that I love and that. they tell him what to do, and Saito can only say, "I've already given the order," because that's the only way I love, of sa- saving face, isn't it? I love the expression on his face. Actually, yeah. through that whole thing, he's just sat there in bewilderment yeah. as these what was five or six British officers show him their plans, and it, this is the bit where perhaps you could say it's a little bit. I don't know whether you'd say the term racist against the Japanese or anti-Japanese. Their engineer. Yeah. maybe it's just him but um he takes his model around you know backs out of the room yeah uh, with his tail between his legs yeah. obviously in deep trouble because the, the decided, british bridges yeah they decided that they're building it in the wrong place because the, the river there is hasn't got a solid foundation yeah. Um, yeah. which of course as we know the Japanese in actuality surveyed everything years in advance they knew exactly where to place the bridge it serves the film pretty well but yeah. there is it is slightly uneasy that in come the british and make everything work yeah uh, but it is a funny scene that where yeah. nicholson says yo could we have a cup of tea and the next <laughs> thing is could, could we have our dinner please we'll carry on working yeah, yeah. Um, but he is saying you know saito's worried about his deadline and there is colonel nicholson saying we're going to work twice as fast oh i'd like some of your men to help out we won't give them as tough a thing although it will it will create a healthy competitiveness <laughs> Talking of deadlines, I love also the scene where Saito's showing his engineer the calendar and they look <laughs> through the months and yeah. it's got a an attractive pin-up lady yes, yeah. and every month you go down, she loses a few more of her clothes so they don't get too far <laughs> along it. <laughs> but it was quite fun. I thought, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope um, they've only got a couple of months to do this because um, yeah. they, they won't show December, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, but at this point, Nicholson is basically focused on the bridge it's almost like he's forgotten there's a war yeah he's, he's doing it for partly for the mental health of his men as you say but also the pride of building this bridge not just for now but for future generations he's thinking once someone yeah. suggests that they use a certain type of wood because it, it'll last 600 years he thinks oh yes. yeah we could build this as a permanent yeah. structure well um, part part of the this is put into sharp focus where there's this great scene where the commandos are up in the jungle looking down at the bridge and they say oh there's a poor British officer down there he's on his knees and then we zoom down and we see it's actually Nicholson and a group of officers putting up a plaque a wooden plaque that says this bridge was designed and constructed by soldiers of the British army February to May 1943 Lieutenant Colonel L. Nicholson DSO commanding you know I mean that really shows perhaps that it's not okay so we thought for the uh, good of his men for the pride Mm. of the British army but the fact he puts his name up on it and there's a plaque you start to wonder about some of the motives actually later there's a scene when the bridge is built between him and Saito and um, Nicholson says that he's hardly been home he's been in the army for 
you know, like 10 years or something. 20, 28 years, I think. Oh, 28 yeah. years. And he's, he's hardly been home 10 months. And he's saying, yeah. what have I got to show for it? Yeah. And it's this bridge. Yeah, that's yes, the one thing. Yeah. That's the point at which he drops his swagger stick by accident yeah. into the water. And yeah. <laughs> it's quite a funny moment. Saito says, uh, they're on the bridge and the sunset. And Saito says, beautiful. And I think he's referring to the sunset. Yes. And Nicholson says, yes, it's an excellent bridge, isn't yes. it? Yes. And then Saito says, oh, yes, yes, it's a beautiful bridge. Yeah. Sir, are you convinced that building this bridge is a good idea? Are you serious? Yes, sir. A good idea? Well, take another look, Clifton. You don't agree that the men's morale is high, that discipline has been restored, that their condition has been improved? Are they a happier lot or aren't they? Yes, sir, but... They feed better and they are no longer abused or maltreated. That's all true. Well, then. Honestly, Clifton, there are times when I don't understand you at all. I'll try to make myself clear, sir. The fact is, what we're doing could be construed as... Forgive me, sir. Collaboration with the enemy. Yes, there's not much to say about the building of the bridge other than that it gets done, really. Once um, Nicholson says... We're going to do it. They basically do it, don't they? Yeah. I mean, it's it's very satisfying. As yes. P- perhaps especially if you're uh, on the side of the Allies to yeah. see such a great bridge. I mean, it looks like a sort of mini fourth bridge, doesn't it? It's yeah. really solid, well built. Um, the, the actual bridge was built out of wood, but then pretty much straight away they replaced it with one made out of um, concrete and steel. The actual historically actual, yes yeah historical yeah, one right the one right in the film but um no I, and they kept both bridges so you know when they were bombed both bridges were damaged both the wooden one and the concrete one right uh, and, and repaired but so in actuality the bridge that was built wasn't going to stand for you know 600 years <laughs> so i'm i'm really we're getting to the ending because we've discussed yeah. the building of the bridge and the commandos are coming in and the ending is fantastic the whole i mean it goes on for a while as the commanders yeah. have got there and they've got to they place the plastic explosive three feet below the water level on the bridge and uh, uh joyce sets up across the river they find a little mm-hmm. spot for him to hide with the plunger yeah. but of course the wire has to go down there and then the next day the train is coming so it's the bridge is open the, the deadline's yeah. been hit on the morning of the 13th of may i think that's the date Mm. This train is coming full of Japanese soldiers. First of yes. all, the prisoners march out, uh, whistling Colonel Bogey again. Yes. As they go off to the next camp. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for them, the war is not over yet. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> but Nicholson stays. The doctor's still there because the hospital men are going to go on later uh, by train, not this yes. train that's coming. Uh, of course, the amazing thing about this is they did actually blow up the bridge now they built Mm. this bridge it was real they were actually going to blow it up it was expensive you can only do that once yes so david lean had five cameras set up (laughs) uh dignitaries from the country i think even the prime minister came sam spiegel flew in it was a really tense moment and i believe david lean had a system where yeah. he had a board with five lights or something, well, one for each camera. So when the camera crew were ready, they would flick a switch and the light would go on to say, yep, they're in position, everything's safe. Yeah, because they had another to light... start the camera 
flick the switch and then get out there because they they weren't going to be near the cameras while it was filming because they didn't course, know how big yeah. the explosion was going to be. Yeah, splinters flying everywhere. Mm. And there was also the train driver. So yes. he had to, at the last moment, now he had to jump off the train. Yeah. So it couldn't be going too fast. But also the train had to, couldn't go too slowly across the bridge. Yeah. So what he had to do was push forward the... I'm going to say accelerator. I don't know much about trains. <laughs> that must be a better word. Push forward the lever, the speed lever. I think that's the, yeah. I'm sure that's the correct term. The speed lever on the train. Just as he did that, flick the switch to turn on the light and jump off. Yes. So it was all very, you know, tense. Now he did that, but he forgot to speed up the train. He also twisted his ankle when he jumped off. But the light went on, but one of the camera lights didn't go on. Yes, and the train's coming across David Lean's watching one of the camera lights isn't on and he cancels the whole thing he abandons it yeah. he says no don't blow it don't blow it because of course he doesn't know there might be a cameraman yeah, around yeah. and it was yeah. dangerous stuff you know someone did die during the filming oh well not during the film there was a stuntman called Frankie Howard and I think Frankie Howard E-R-D is the yeah. ooh Mrs yes, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was perfect impression of him but frankie howard was the stuntman he was stuntman dressed as a japanese soldier falls into the river but the current was really strong and he got into trouble someone else went in yeah i think actually three people were in the end and luckily they got through but frankie howard the stuntman got a stomach bug he went back to england uh, to hospital yeah. and he actually got um you know basically a tropical disease yeah, and died from it so although he didn't die during the filming he he did die from the film as far as, as, far as i understand yeah. and even david lean had to be rescued from the river they went swimming on a day off and he got into trouble in the river and had to be rescued by yeah one of his crew he reckons he would have drowned uh, it was a close thing anyway back to the bridge yes so they had to do it again the next day it turned out that one of the cameramen had forgotten to flick the switch Yes, he wasn't actually... On. That's all it was, yeah. 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 And the, the train ploughed... Went across the bridge and ploughed into a generator, apparently. Yeah. That's the only yeah. thing that stopped it. Yes, yes, because there was no one aboard, of course. And then they had to lift it to use it again, the train. Yeah. Hmm. But they contacted the owner of a crane um, to lift it, and he refused to let them use his crane because he hadn't been invited to the exploding of the bridge <laughs> right <laughs> so someone decided they they in the end they got a load of huge jacks you know um physical right. lifting devices yeah. to get the train back yeah. onto the tracks and oh my god get it back to place yeah oh yeah, yeah. so the next anyway day, they did they did do it they had to have someone else i think the I think there was a guy who was officially David Lean's carpenter on the set. Um, but he, David Lean really trusted him. And he kind of did all kinds of different jobs. And I, th I think it was him. Sorry if I got this wrong. I think it was him who drove the train the second time and jumped off it. Anyway, the second time it worked. And it is, it is a good shot, isn't it? Yeah. It's the bridge exploding. I mean, there's, you know, there's quite a few films from the time where back projection is used or special mm. effects and at the time they're fine yeah but they've dated now and they stand out in films bridge on the river kwai it's almost like a, an all-natural film it, yeah it's it's so solid you can it's timeless because they didn't use any effects mm. it's just mm. 
almost documentary like yes not in its style but in in the fact that it's just a camera pointing at what's actually happening mm. so it's very good and the whole ending is very exciting yeah because um, of course before the explosion nicholson sees the cable yeah and he he summons saito and they both go down yeah. to see what it is and he must know what it is or maybe he doesn't i don't know it's, it's kind slow. of crazy isn't it he says yeah. there's something odd and he's it takes him quite a long time down the river following this thing before he he says yes there is something going on <laughs> yeah and even then he doesn't like grab the cable until i suppose he could think late. it's a it could be a rope or something so maybe yeah he yeah. may not be sure um, now, apparently i don't know if you've heard this apparently david lean and alec guinness had on on the day they were still talking about whether <laughs> he deliberately fell on the, the plunger the explosion the plunger yeah, yeah. <laughs> or whether it's an accident they couldn't decide because yeah. right near the end he says what have i done as though he realizes yes. he's been working with the enemy and he was about to yeah but then he's shot and he falls on the plunger and is that yeah. deliberate or is it what not? do you think <laughs> it doesn't i mean i'd like to think that he would do it because he says what have i done so he comes to his mm. senses yeah but he, it's clearly he's been shot and it looks like it's by accident that he falls on it so <laughs> it's interesting isn't it i i agree he does say what have i done mm. so that seems like a realization but when he's falling he looks really out of it but yes. it kind of looks like he's trying to stay conscious as well it's, it's brilliant acting actually yeah and he does fall on it and i think he was heading that direction yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what i like to believe what do you think of the bit where he says what have i done is that too sudden a turnaround does what leads up to that why is he one minute showing saito you know revealing the fact that there's a, obviously something going on yeah and then suddenly what have i done what's that realization well i can't remember the exact order of events but of course joyce gets killed yeah right in front of him and it that seeing could him? bring bring to home that they're at war rather than he's just been, building a bridge yeah. yeah he's been in this in this microcosm yes. world of the japanese uh prison of war camp so long that he's forgotten and when he sees joyce lying there dead one of yes. his allies yeah what have i done that that i like that that makes sense i'll go with that one thing i thought this is sort of in praise of nicholson <laughs> is of course they're in a terrible situation the prisoner of war camp and the way he gets through it is by totally focusing on one micro situation as you say a, a sort of microcosm yeah. of just building the bridge i mean that's a good way of getting through that terrible situation but obviously yeah. He does it to the expense of forgetting that they're actually in a war. <laughs> and this yes. is the point where he comes out of it. Yeah. And of course, Shears gets killed as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. And he doesn't really have much of a death scene. He just goes under the water, doesn't he? He kind of, you think, I mean, he voluntarily goes mm. across the river to get this. You must know, he must know that he's probably not going to make it. So for someone yeah. who wanted to just get, um, you know, was hoping for a medical discharge and to get out of there... Yeah. I mean, obviously, when he's in the situation, that happens. And you kind of think, overall, is it... Okay, so how many lives were lost? You know, just let's just talk about the commando operation sending in. Of course, one of the commandos died straight away. He he parachuted into a tree and yes. yeah, he probably yeah. broke his neck or something. Warden makes it. Um, Shears gets killed. Joyce gets killed. The villager who helps them gets yeah, killed. I, yeah. 
I think all the women, the the six most beautiful women in the village, all survive. <laughs> um, Nicholson gets killed. Blowing up the bridge, was it worth it? Is it worth it in the war effort when it just yeah. gets rebuilt? I mean, obviously it was a very good bridge. So. <laughs> but it's as um, Major Clipton says at the end, madness. Yeah. Madness. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of can't disagree with that. Yes. That is the last the, line of the film, isn't it? And it's fitting. There's a bit where Shears um, is with Warden. They're just getting him onto the stretcher. Mm. And Warden doesn't want to get on. But he's going on about the rules. They're all going on about the rules. Nicholson's into the rules. Saito's into the rules. Warden's into the rules. And and something Major Clipton said as well about, you know, forget the principles. These are people's lives. Yes. And yes. Shears says it too. He says, you know, live like a human being. You'll go on without me. That's an order. You're in command now, Shears. I won't obey that order. You make me sick with your heroics. There's a stench of death about you. You carry it in your pack like the plague. Explosives and L pills, they go well together, don't they? And with you, it's just one thing or the other. Destroy a bridge or destroy yourself. This is just a game, this war. You and that Colonel Nicholson, you're two of a kind. Crazy with courage. For what? How to die like a gentleman. How to die by the rules. When the only important thing is how to live like a human being. Yeah. And that's kind of what my overall view of this is. But of course, I've not been involved in a war. Mm. And I've not been in the army. And when you're in the army, you're in a different world in a way. Yeah. Um, but there is this idea, I think, that's why I said, is it worth blowing up the bridge? Yeah. Of course, all these little things did matter. I mean, perhaps it's these little things that eventually built up and led to... You know the Nazis and um, you know Imperial Japan losing the war, which seems like the right outcome from where I'm sitting. <laughs> <laughs> but there's this humanity side to it. You know, people lose their lives, and people gave their lives for something, and you think, was it worth it? Mm. And so when you get Clifton saying madness, I agree with him on that level. I think was a bridge worth these lives yeah maybe it was maybe it was yeah. in the in the grand scheme of things but it seems to me um not being involved in a war now from my very comfortable position <laughs> not in the jungle not fighting a war and very privileged not to be in those situations uh, i can't help but think it's not worth the human yeah. lives but then yeah. you know there was a war wasn't there and it was awful i mean you could say if they just built the bridge and didn't blow it up then no one would die rebuilding it but then the railway would be open and uh, soldiers would get through that much quicker yeah. and so other people would die. There's no it's these little make... things that um, can lead to much bigger consequences, you're yes. right. So they did matter, let's say that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so just to end off, I think basically this film is saying war is crazy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and it kind of, this shows it is, but it also shows some of the intricacies and contradictions but also the fact that perhaps it needs to be crazy if yes. it happens at all which is yeah. um, you know obviously very sad <laughs> uh, indictment of humanity but uh, mm. but anyway overall i think a really good film and i i watched it twice in fairly quick succession and was not bored the second time i i yeah. really got into it again i think it's a really good quality film yeah considering it's almost three hours you know it's two hours yeah. 40 minutes Yes. And it doesn't have a huge cast. You know, it's not, not like one of these ensemble no. pieces with lots of stories. It yes. Doesn't, yeah. It doesn't feel as though there's 
anything you could cut out you know it still feels quite dramatically compelling doesn't it yeah i agree i agree i can't think of anything even though there were a couple of scenes that were criticized or worried about at the time for instance mm. with the nurse i think they all work great and there's there's humor in it um the characters are fantastic the yes. setting's interesting if not perhaps realistic but then yeah you know we don't we probably don't want to see that in entertainment which is really what it is in the end it's not yeah. a historical documentary but yeah a great i think a great ending to our war film series yes the only thing i was going to add because we start off seeing japan has invaded burma because britain had actually invaded burma first yeah. yes of <laughs> um, course it was a british colony from 1884 but in 1948, after the war, it was um, also it got its independence, so it came right, back to being, right. and then, as we know, it descended into <laughs> its own problems. But um, yes, yeah, as everywhere has. But yes. uh, okay, so thank you very much, Murray. I enjoyed doing those. Yeah, yes. um, we'll see. We'll see if that's the end or not. But for now, that's definitely the end of the War Films podcast. Thank you very much, everyone who listened to it. Um, you can go back and listen to any of the 10 and we've also got the 10 adventure film podcasts so thank you very much thank you bye